What can financially struggling cities today learn from municipal fiscal crises of the past? How can cities, states, and the federal government work together more efficiently and effectively in making and implementing policy? And in particular, what should all these levels of government, along with the private sector, be doing to address the U.S.'s need for improved national infrastructure? From the Chicago Policy Review and the University of Chicago, this is Chicago Policy Radio. I'm your host, Julie Cooper. Today I'm speaking with former Pennsylvania Governor Edward Rendell. Governor Rendell has had a long career in public service, including serving two terms each as mayor of Philadelphia and as governor of Pennsylvania. During his time as mayor of Philadelphia in the 1990s, he helped pull the city out of extreme financial crisis, a feat called, quote, the most stunning turnaround in recent urban history. Today, Governor Rendell is a partner at the law firm of Ballard Spar, where his practice focuses on public-private partnerships and housing, with an emphasis on infrastructure. He also sits on a number of boards and works to promote advances in the areas of alternative energy, government efficiency, and infrastructure investment. Governor Rendell, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, I'd like to start by talking about your time as mayor of Philadelphia. As I mentioned, you came into office during an extreme financial crisis in the city, and during your first term, you were able to turn the city around, balance the budget, and oversee a budget surplus. How would you compare your experience in Philadelphia to some of the fiscal challenges faced by many mayors today? Well, similar to some extent, but different. Uh, right now, the major fiscal challenge that most cities face is pension reform. Uh, pensions are... Uh, not, not covered by current revenues. There's a huge unfunded liability in the pensions, and uh, cities have got to figure a way to straighten that out or else they're in desperate trouble. Uh, you notice in Detroit, uh, the bankruptcy judge did something that was really unique, and he went ahead and said that federal bankruptcy law trumped state constitutions so that they could change pension benefits for people who already had vested those benefits. That's startlingly unusual. Uh, don't know whether that will be appealed, but it's a, a, an amazing uh, development. But that's the major challenge. Back when I took over in 92, that wasn't the major challenge. The major challenge was just so much waste, uh, so much uh, 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 abuse of programs, uh, so much in the big northeastern and midwestern cities. The unions had uh, dominated when I became mayor unions were receiving 58 cents in benefits for every dollar of salary. The average private sector firm in Philadelphia was 27 cents in benefits for every dollar in salary. No, any private sector business at 58 cents in benefits for every dollar in salary would have been bankrupt, and we essentially were. Uh, do you think that there are any lessons from your experience that would be relevant to some of today's most financially troubled cities? You mentioned Detroit as one example. Well, no question. I, I mean, uh, one of the things we had to do, we had a control board when, when I became mayor, and so we had to report everything to the control board. The control board had to approve all budgets, all major developments. And we put together for the control board 
a about a 54-page document that had all of the cost-saving things that we undertook, all the revenue enhancements. I don't mean raising taxes, but collecting revenues better. Uh, simple thing like uh, uh, if you call 911 and a fire department emergency vehicle comes and takes you to the hospital, if you're poor and don't have care, we're not going to charge you for that, obviously. But if you're covered by Medicaid, Medicare, if you're covered by a private health plan, that is coverable. That's reimbursable. The city never sought reimbursement. So we went out and sought reimbursement for all of those things and produced, I think, that alone saved us over a million dollars a year. And we did literally dozens and dozens and dozens of things like that to, to enhance revenue, to cut waste, to be more productive. And they're all contained in that 54-page document. And whenever mayors call me or my former chief of staff, David Cohn, who's pretty renowned, uh, we send them that 54-page document. Now, again, not all of those things are, are prevalent in their cities, but a number of them are. You also served two terms as governor of Pennsylvania. What are the major differences you found between managing a major city and managing a state? Well, a couple of differences. Uh, number one, when you manage a city, you are the first responder. Everything that happens in the city, the mayor is responsible for, the mayor must fix, the mayor must mediate, whatever. As governor, you're remote. You're the mediator of the last resort. You're the uh, uh, problem solver of the last resort. So it's less hands-on. Like when I'm mayor, I got involved in all of the strikes, including the transportation strikes. As governor, I would be called in at the end if they thought that I could be helpful in resolving the strike. Um, so mayor is more hands-on. It's more vibrant. Also, mayor has one TV market, so you can really drive public policy by just dominating the, the, the airwaves. You can't do that in a state like Pennsylvania. We have six different TV markets. And Harrisburg is remote, so even back home in Philadelphia, I couldn't get on the air that much one-tenth of the time that I did as mayor. So mayor's more fun, it's more visceral, but it's made up for a little bit by governor having the resources. As mayor, I could do very little other than try to persuade others to help Philadelphia's education system. As governor, I produced $4.2 billion a year more in education funding for the entire state, of which $600 million went to Philadelphia. And then, I guess, to go up uh, one more level, uh, some people argue that the federal government today is too gridlocked to make or implement any really meaningful public policy, and that most innovation is coming from cities and, to some extent, states. How do you view the relationship between the federal government and state and local governments in making and implementing policy? Well, the federal government, first and foremost, has got to stop giving us unfunded mandates mandates where they legislate some change but don't give us any money to, to pay to effectuate or implement that change. Secondly, if they promulgate regulations, those regulations have to be sensible, common sense regulations, and they have to be regulations that are can be carried out fairly swiftly so they don't retard growth and development. Um, those are important. Thirdly, um, the, the federal government uh, should have more programs like the TIGER program in the Transportation Stimulus Bill, 
which allowed for competitive the states to come in competitively, or race to the top in the education department, which was also competitive. States had to compete for those dollars. Those programs are better because we can respond and they sort of promote excellence. It's much better than just, just sending states X amount of money in a stagnant form with a whole lot of restrictions and regulations. And then finally, throughout your career, you have been a strong advocate for the strengthening of America's infrastructure. Most recently, you helped to create the organization Building America's Future, a nonpartisan coalition for federal infrastructure investment. How would you articulate what is at stake in addressing this issue, and how do you think the country can uh, address it effectively? What's well, interesting, first, Building America's Future is not only motivated to increase federal investment, we want to increase investment in the states, in the cities, and in the private sector, because transportation is crucial. When you think about what transportation does, what good transportation does, and what not so good transportation doesn't do, one is public safety. We've seen bridges collapse and people die. Uh, two, it's quality of life. How many people do you know that spend 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes at night stuck in traffic because the roads are too congested? That's an hour a day. That's five hours a week. That's 20 hours a month. That's 240 hours a, a year. That's the equivalent of 10 days. 10 days of your life you could get back if we could eliminate congestion. So it's public safety, it's quality of life, it's job creation because infrastructure is the best creator of well-paying blue-collar jobs that you can have in America. And fourthly, it's economic competitiveness. President Obama in his last State of the Union address had one great line about infrastructure. He said, if you follow the global marketplace, you know that well-paying jobs follow well-done infrastructure. And he's correct. He's absolutely correct. Um, infrastructure is dramatically important to our own economic competitiveness. We're sitting here in Chicago, and I'll give you a great example. Moving goods is crucially important. The ability to move goods fast and quickly. Well, in Chicago, we have a huge problem. We have a fairly decent freight system in the West and a very good one in the East. But everything runs through Chicago that runs west to east or east to west or anywhere to the Midwest. Well, do you know that the Chicago rail yards are so congested that you can move a freight train from Los Angeles to the western edge of the Chicago rail yards in the same amount of time as it takes to get from the western edge of the Chicago rail yards to the eastern edge of the Chicago rail yards? And there's no excuse for that. And it slows down our goods movement and it makes us non-competitive. I'll give you a perfect example of that. There's something called a metallurgical coal, which is the feedstock for coke production. And coke, of course, is the feedstock for steel production. So it's very, very important. And China has plenty of coal, but none of this metallurgical coal. So it needs to import its metallurgical coal. It's found in two places, U.S. and Australia. Australia is a high labor state, so the labor costs are very similar to the U.S., but China almost always invariably goes to Australia first because Australia can move its coal from the mines to its port cities infinitely faster than the U.S. can. So we lose out on literally billions and billions of dollars of revenue from exporting metallurgical coal.
Just one example in thousands. Governor Endell, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And the, 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 these are important issues, and it's really incumbent upon us to get government right, to streamline government, to make it more effective, and better st federal, state, local relations are a key part of that. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Chicago Policy Radio, a production of the Chicago Policy Review and the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Our podcast was produced and edited by Julie Cooper. Special thanks this week to Susan Milani, David Goodlow, and the Center for Policy Entrepreneurship. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ryan Gee. You can find us at www.chicagopolicyreview.org. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time.